Well, good morning. As always, it is such a privilege to be able to preach the Word of God to you all. As your bulletin indicates, we are going to be in the second psalm this morning, so you can be opening your your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. And to prepare our thoughts for the message, I I want to draw your attention to an article by pastor and author Kevin DeYoung. Just a couple of months ago, he wrote an insightful article entitled, We Live in Confusing Times. And as you'll see as we go through it, that's an understatement. Uh, but the reason I want to draw your attention to this article as we begin to uh, look at Psalm 2 is if you notice in verse 3 of Psalm 2, you have that language there of tearing their fetters apart, casting away their cords from us, and basically the, the intensity of wanting to get rid of any any rule of God over us. Let's get rid of the righteous rule of God. And what DeYoung does in this article is he illustrates the absurdity of what happens when man tries to do that very thing. Uh, so it is... a uh, It'll be a couple of minutes here as we work our way through this, but I want to quote the article in its entirety because it illustrates the hypocrisy and inconsistency and really incoherence of godless ideologies, and it becomes a really good illustration of what's happening in verses 1 to 3 in our psalm. So he begins this way, follow me in the following intellectual exercise. Gender is a social construct, period. At the same time, it's always good when women can break glass ceilings. We should celebrate all the firsts that we see women do because women are certainly not men. By women, of course, I mean anyone who identifies as a woman, including people we used to know as men. Sex is a socially derived category that assigns certain physical differences and then labels those differences as male or female. There are no immutable distinctions between men and women. We're all on a spectrum. We can all change, unless we're talking about sexual desires. Coming out as gay or lesbian is something we should all be proud of because people can't change the way they were born. In fact, it should be illegal for doctors and counselors and religious leaders to try to change people who were born a certain way. But some people definitely should be able to change the way they were born in terms of gender. And doctors and counselors and religious leaders should do everything they can to encourage that change. Sometimes our bodies don't align with our true selves. Never forget your self-identity is your genuine identity, except when it comes to race and ethnicity. You should never claim an ethnic or racial identity that isn't yours. Be careful what you eat and what you wear. You can't just appropriate someone else's culture. But you can appropriate someone else's gender or go with no gender at all. We've all been socialized into a gender system that tells us how to think and how to act. The sooner we do away with the notion of gender binary altogether, the better. But just remember, women have been held back by the evils of patriarchy. Women are oppressed. Men are oppressors. That's a fact. Not that women or men mean anything more than fluid and culturally conditioned modes of self-identification, obviously. Still, we shouldn't do away with women's sports. It's essential that every college have as many sports for women as for men. We must have equal opportunities for both sexes, sports for women, sports for men. Those categories are absolutely critical. He continues, but if men want to participate as women in women's sports, that's also really good because the sexual differences upon which the existence of men's and women's sports rest, they don't really exist. But don't get me wrong, women have it a lot harder than men trying to balance being a mom and pursuing a career. Just to be clear, though, men can also be mothers. 
birthing persons come in all genders. Not the genders, anything more than what our culture tells us it is. Don't forget that. And don't forget that women get paid less than men in the workplace, and women are underrepresented in Fortune 500 companies, and we've still never had a woman president, or at least not a president that we took to be a woman. It's hard to say what a woman is without biologists weighing in. Not that being a man or a woman is rooted in biology. That goes without saying. Well, whatever a woman is, we know this for sure. Women have a right to do what they want with their bodies. Reproductive freedom is the most important uh, women's issue of our time, but I'm not saying that only women can reproduce. Men can menstruate too. Being a woman has many challenges. That's why it's important we protect them and make them feel safe, except in restrooms, locker rooms, prisons. And it's okay for women to feel unsafe around men because everyone knows those men are really women. It's also worth remembering that men and women don't have to look a certain way, but if a man becomes a woman, he should pick a woman's name and try not to look masculine anymore. I mean, if there was such a thing as masculinity, because obviously there isn't. But sometimes there is, and then it's toxic. Here's the bottom line. Gender's a social construct, period. And then he ends with this article. I know it's complicated, but don't worry. The less you think about it, the more it'll make sense. Good title of the article, right? We live in confusing times. Good illustration of what's going on in our culture. We live in an era where godless, wicked ideologies have taken over the culture. And if you're anything like me, especially in recent years, you've probably found yourself at times scratching your head thinking, these ideas, these systems of thought are so incoherent and inconsistent and hypocritical. They're self-refuting and lacking in common sense Why do people not only affirm them, but passionately defend them, even violently at times? Well, it is the same answer to this question. What is the foundational issue underneath every incoherent, godless ideology being promoted in our culture today? The answer is this. God does not have the right to tell me who I am, how I am to think, how I am to live. His righteous design and standard restricts my ability to do what I want to do without guilt. It is a passionate hatred of God and a rejection of his rightful rule over society, over his creation. Well, this is what we see as we turn our attention now to Psalm 2. Let's read the passage. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a messianic psalm. 
And there are two types of messianic psalms. You, you have those that directly refer to the experience of the psalmist in his historical setting, while at the same time that historical experience of the psalmist is foreshadowing a future experience of the Messiah. An example of that would be Psalm 22, just taking verse 1. Remember David said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David cried out those words in his own historical context. Christ cried out those words in his context. David was foreshadowing Christ in that. But then secondly, there are those messianic psalms where the psalmist is intentionally speaking of a future Messiah. He is speaking of things that cannot be true of any mere human individual in the history of Israel. And that is my understanding of this psalm. The psalmist wrote intentionally of the coming rule of the Messiah. Certainly, there are themes, there are principles, there are details in Psalm 2 that would apply to historical kings in Israel, like David, Solomon, and others. But even though some of the language and principles might overlap, it is clear that the details here can only be attributed to the future rule of the Messiah, the greater David. In this psalm, we are shown how the conflict between God and human rulers culminates in God's establishment of his ultimate king, the Messiah. And there were two times in particular that this psalm would be sung. First, at the time of the coronation of the king in Israel. And secondly, in times of national crisis, when the people of Israel needed to be reminded, God has an answer for wicked rebellion. God is in control of all wicked leaders in the world. He's ultimately in control of all things. And so we too can look at this passage and be reminded that any threats, any opposition from the wicked against God, any flourishing of the evil in our culture, it is ultimately all according to his sovereign plan. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. The world's antagonism and wickedness, it can easily discourage us. It can frighten us. It can anger us. But we can find great comfort and hope as we view earth and its rebellion through the lens of heaven, which is what Psalm 2 gives us. We really get the entire Christian worldview here. And it gives us an answer to our longing to be under the reign of one who rules in perfect justice, righteousness, and peace. Psalm 2 breaks up nicely into four stanzas, so we're going to be looking at four scenes depicting how God deals with human rebellion. Four scenes depicting how God deals with human rebellion. In the first scene, we're going to see a targeted rebellion is exposed. A targeted rebellion is exposed. This is verses 1 to 3. Notice verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Why are the nations, the, the Gentile nations outside of Israel and the rulers, the groups within those nations, why are they in an uproar and scheming this vain thing? David, who we know from later Revelation, is the author of this psalm from Acts 4. But he's expressing astonishment here at the senseless rejection of God's authority. He's not asking why because he doesn't know theologically about man's heart and why he would be resistant to God's authority. It's rather the why of amazement. Have they gone entirely insane to think that collaborating together they could contend with God, thwart his will, and succeed? 
And notice these groups are in an uproar, a rage, restlessness, disorder, agitation as they come together and plan this revolt. Well, what is this exercise in futility? Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So the nations and the peoples in verse 1 are now clarified to reveal it's the leaders of these groups. It's the kings. And remarkably, they've all conspired together and have become united in a common cause. What is the common cause? The enemy they're teaming up to fight. Yahweh and his anointed. That's the target of their rebellion. Notice it's not the concept of God in general that they have a problem with. No one has a problem with that because you can just fashion and shape God into the image that you want. No, it is against Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the church, and his anointed. Now, anointed is the Hebrew word for Messiah. We transliterate that into Greek. It's Christ. Christ. So the term was used, this anointing term was used all throughout the Old Testament to refer to kings, priests, prophets who were anointed, set apart, consecrated by God to those particular services. In this particular context, the emphasis is royal. His anointed would mean his consecrated king, the one who's been chosen and endowed by God, set apart to rule, to deliver. And this is referring to the ultimate anointed one, the supreme anointed one, the Messiah, as will become clear as we keep going. So Yahweh and his anointed one, that's the target of this rebellion. Now, think about all the differences that exist between people groups and nations and rulers and politicians and presidents. Different goals, different languages, different laws, different customs, traditions, different religions. In fact, throughout human history, many of these rulers are bitter enemies of one another. They would never team up for any reason. And yet what's remarkable here is that although they have all these differences, they're able to come together united in a common bond of hostility against Yahweh and his king. Hard, hard for us to imagine them actually accomplishing this because we, we tend to look at leaders today as childish and proud and lacking common sense oftentimes. But this demonstrates that if they become desperate enough, they can come together and they can fight a common enemy. Just take Russia and Ukraine, for example. Imagine Putin and Zelensky just let's put our differences aside, team up. Team up for a moment. And then, if that's not hard enough to imagine, imagine North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un calls and he says, can I be a part? And they say, yeah, you, you, you can be a part. Sure, come on in. And they call Joe Biden and he comes as well. And then, just for fun, let's bring, him, bring in some historical leaders here. Imagine Donald Trump being a part of this unholy alliance. He comes in, he gets along with all of them. And let's throw in former communist leader of China, Mao Zedong. And if that wouldn't be enough, let's put in Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein. World leaders conspiring together. Many would be bitter enemies of one another, passionately against one another. But hey, we can put all those things aside because we recognize there's a greater threat to our rule than any one of us could do to one another. It's Yahweh and his king. So notice what their unholy alliance is committed to do in verse 3. 
Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Fetters, cords, that's the language of the restriction of one who's been taken captive, one who's a prisoner. In modern day language, let us tear off their chains. Let us free ourselves from these restraints. Notice how they view God's authority, which is manifested how? God's law, his righteous standard. How do they view that? It's like we're imprisoned. It's a hatred of righteousness. They don't want accountability to live according to a righteous standard. To them, that's bondage. So these rulers come together and are able to agree for the first time in history on one thing. No matter what else we have in our world, we cannot have God's restrictions, God's righteous rule invading our reign. This is a global declaration of independence from God. Now, back up to verse 1 for a moment. It's interesting that that word in verse 1, you see that they're devise, they devise a vain thing. Literally means to murmur, to mutter, kind of under one's breath. So in some passages, it's, it's translated as meditation because uh, one is thinking to themselves, muttering under their breath. Look back at Psalm 1-2, the same word is used. Psalm 1 verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he devises, he meditates day and night. So what a contrast we're given here in Psalm 2. Because back in Psalm 1, you have the believer, the blessed man, the happy man, rejecting the wisdom and ways of the wicked as he delights in the law of God and he meditates on it. He doesn't want it out from his life, out of his mind. He wants it in. He wants it absorbed. But here in Psalm 2, there's also meditation going on. But now it's the meditation. It's the meditation of plotting and scheming the removing of the law of God from one's life. The blessed man meditates on God's law. Unbelief meditates on how it can come out from God's law. Before our minds go drifting off to thinking about some politician, some celebrity, some family or or friend who rejects God's standard, we would be wise to first consider if there's any of that anti-authority remnant in our own hearts. How do you view God's righteous laws, his commandments? Even that word, God's commandments, does it conjure up a a negative connotation in your mind? Are they restrictions hindering you from doing what you would really prefer to be doing? Do you tolerate them or do you delight in them? You know, when you think of the truth, when you think of Scripture, does your mind meditate on all the ways you can be more strategic in applying Scripture and be more strategic in remembering Scripture? Or does your mind dwell and meditate on all the reasons why you're exempt from obedience in that area? I don't, that, that law doesn't apply to me because of my circumstances. Even meditating on how it's not right, it's not fair that God expects me to trust and obey when my life looks like this. See, these wicked rulers here are giving us a vivid illustration of the natural tendency in the heart of each one of us to be resistant to God's righteous rule. By the way, this is why a hardened heart, a heart set on sin, can't be reasoned with. This is why there are all of these self-contradicting laws and incoherent ideologies that go against plain reason and self-evident truths. Why is that? Man will do whatever it takes to not have to come under God's righteous standard. 
doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. doesn't matter if it will destroy society. We will not have God reigning over us. Notice the psalmist indicates here in verse 1 that this is a vain thing. Collective effort against God, all human resources collectively put together, it's futile and destined to fail. And it's even worse than that. Because not only will it fail, but even the very scheming, the plotting to revolt against God, it's still all part of his plan. Let's turn to Acts 4 to see this. Turn, turn over to Acts 4. The first part of Psalm 2 is actually referenced here in Acts 4. Peter and John have just been released from the authorities and they go back to the church to give the report. Pick it up in verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said. And now they quote Psalm 2 out of the Septuagint. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And now they explain why they referenced Psalm 2. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Now, the early church is not quoting Psalm 2 here in the language of fulfillment. You'll notice that that language isn't there. They are quoting this psalm because the principle of what they saw in Psalm 2 was at work. When Jesus was handed over to death, there was an unholy alliance by wicked rulers against Yahweh and his anointed. This unholy alliance, you can see there in verse 27, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, the rulers and the various nations. In fact, it's interesting, Herod and Pilate were enemies of one another, but then they became friends when they decided to go after Christ. You can read about that in Luke 23, 12. This principle has happened throughout Israel's history. Rulers and kings have historically come against God's anointed in Israel. It was also the principle at work, as we see here, behind the crucifixion of Christ. It's the principle at work behind any opposition to the church, any opposition to God's people. If Christ is on earth, it's directed to him. If Christ is in heaven, it's directed toward his people. That's the principle. In either case, the church here. In Acts 4, draws from Psalm 2, why? For boldness, because it reminded them God is in control. Even the opposition to the church, the arresting of our leaders, God's in control because look at what happened with the Messiah. That was all part of God's plan. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Their little plot, their wicked scheme, their rebellion, their plan to rid the world of Christ and put him to death, all part of God's plan. Even when one is rebelling against God and his rule, they are fulfilling his sovereign will. In the language of Genesis 50:20, what they mean for evil, God means for good. 
So back to Psalm 2, this is the first scene. A targeted rebellion is exposed. That brings us to the second scene depicting how God will deal with human rebellion. In this scene, we see a terrifying ridicule is expressed. A terrifying ridicule is expressed, verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. You'll notice in your bulletin that I entitled this sermon, When God Laughs. Excuse me, When God Laughs. That's the best I could come up with, but I also think this passage right here is so critical to keep in the front of our minds in the days that we are living in. It's a, this is anthropomorphic language at its finest here. Notice the contrast between God and the kings in verse 2. In verse 2, kings of the earth. Verse 4, God in the heavens. Verse 2, the kings and the peoples are running around frantically scrambling to come up with a plot. We've got to get rid of this divine influence upon the earth. Verse 4, God sits. Verse 2, the nations and the peoples are angry. They're in an uproar full of rage. Verse 4, God's laughing. And notice the name of God has changed here. It's not capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. It is Adonai, still translated as Lord, but stressing his sovereign rulership over everyone and everything. And this sovereign Lord who's being rebelled against conspired in a global assault to remove him of his influence is sitting. He hasn't even been moved to rise from his throne. He remains seated and maybe we could even just picture him leaning over the, the armrest of his throne. Oh there's, a, oh, there's an insurrection, a global insurrection coming against me. And then he laughs. He can't help but to laugh. And the Lord scoffs at them. They are objects of his ridicule. What a pathetic, futile attempt to dethrone. It's met with divine mocking. The picture here we see is the calm assurance of the Lord in the face of the most heightened expression of human hostility. His laughter is a righteous display of his sovereign confidence. This reminds me of the account in Genesis 11. You don't have to turn there. You're probably familiar with it. But you remember Genesis 11? Man was desiring to live in self-willed independence from God, wanting to glorify himself rather than God, wanting to make a name for himself. We're going to build my kingdom. We're going to be great. Genesis 11.4, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city. And a tower whose top will reach into heaven, let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. How's the Lord respond? Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Oh, you have a, you have a big tower extending up into the heavens. Let me, come, let me come all the way down to see your big tower. Back here in Psalm 2. He isn't threatened, he isn't anxious, he isn't afraid, but he's not indifferent. Notice verse 5 as we continue to see this terrifying ridicule expressed. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The rebellion of mankind arouses God's holy, righteous wrath, but notice how he retaliates. Not how we would if we were God. 
not by immediately and violently just wiping them out with lightning or fire from heaven, but rather with a declaration. A declaration that is future then, at that point in the future, then he will speak. At a point when verses 1 to 3 have reached their most intense expression, their most intense level, and what does he say? But as for me, I myself, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is remarkable because it's a future event, but the prophetic past tense is used. I have installed my king. I'll speak to them then in the future, and at that point I will say to them, I have installed my king. It's so certain God can speak about it in the past tense. A New Testament example of this, we can think of Romans 8.30. You ever read that and been a little confused? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. I'm not glorified. Are you? (laughs) How can he put that in the past tense? Because it's such a certain reality. It can be spoken of in the past tense. If you've been predestined, if you've been called, if you've been justified, you're as good as glorified. There's no chance it won't happen. Same is true here in Psalm 2. The the installation, the particular king, the particular location, it's fixed. Man can do nothing to thwart it or change any detail. It's interesting because you would expect verse 6 to read, but as for me, I will judge them. I will punish them. I will wipe them out. After all, he's trying to terrify them in his anger. But that's not what we see. In his anger and fury, he responds by saying he's installing a king. And if you think about it, this is worse. This is worse. Because this king is going to be reigning in the very same realm of their rebellion, their, the, the earth. This king is going to invade their realm. Think about what they're doing. They are conspiring together, attempting a global insurrection to ensure Yahweh and his king Do not rule over us. We will not have their rules, their righteous standard over us. How does God respond? I'm going to put a king to rule over you. Very clear that this is earthly and not heavenly. I've installed my king where? Upon Zion, my holy mountain. And you say, why there? Well, turn to one passage very briefly, Psalm 132, 11. Psalm 132.11, the Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Why there? The Lord chose to desire it. Nothing special about the dirt or the water or the topography. That is where the Lord chose to desire for his dwelling place to be. Back to Psalm 2, there are many in the church today who would have us believe, well, verse 6 is referring to a current reign of Christ in heaven. After all, he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's reigning right now. Well, he is in a sense, but not in this sense. That requires an allegorical hermeneutic, and it's also exactly what the kings would prefer. Keep Christ in heaven, out of the way, not on earth. 
We'll just continue to deny his existence. We'll just keep persecuting the church. We'll keep reigning in wickedness, destroying societies. Keep Christ out of here. What's terrifying to an earthly king about a heavenly reign of Christ? They just continue to live how they've always lived. Christ is reigning right now in the sense that he has absolute sovereign control over everyone and everything, exalted to the right hand of the Father. But in the future, he's going to have a tangible kingly rule in Jerusalem, one that's going to terrify earthly kings and bring them into subjection to him. That brings us to the third scene depicting how God deals with human rebellion. A triumphant reign is established. A triumphant reign is established, verses 7 through 9. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now notice in verse 6, it was God the Father speaking. Here it is his son, also a divine speaker. He now refers to his father as Yahweh. This is the king, the Messiah, declaring by what right he has to rule. He's explaining why he is the rightful heir to the throne. And why, why is it? It's based on a decree, an established decision and declaration of Yahweh himself. Now the language here is a reference to what we see in the initial details of the Davidic covenant. Second Samuel 7.14, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. If you read those details about the Davidic covenant, you notice some of the details apply to mere human descendants of David, while others can only apply to, to a greater David, the Messiah. So what is verse 7 talking about? When, when is this happening? You are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, if you know your New Testament, that's a phrase that's quoted several times in the New Testament. But we have to be careful because it's quoted for different reasons in different contexts to emphasize different aspects of the identity of Christ or his ministry. But probably the most relevant one for us to look at would be Acts 13. So look at Acts 13, 32. <clears throat> Acts 13.32, here's what Paul says. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to your children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul connects the language in Psalm 2 to the resurrection. We could also think of Romans 1.4, Christ was declared to be the Son of God by virtue of his resurrection. Now, the Son has always been the Son, but at the resurrection, he was declared to be the Son. What's the difference there? The resurrection put creation on notice that the Son of God has been exalted and given all of the privileges and honor of being the Son of God. As Calvin notes, this expression, to be begotten, does not imply that he began to be the Son of God, but that his being so is now made manifest to the world. All right, so back in Psalm 2, this begotten language, it's not to prove his deity, it's to confirm his kingliness. Don't think of begotten as divine procreation, as the Son becoming in his essence something he's never been. 
Think of begotten as begetting into royalty, begetting into a royal existence. Today, by virtue of the resurrection and ascension, today I have begotten you. Today I bestow upon you the honor and privilege of sonship as it relates to your rule over the world. Now, you say, wait a minute, Eric, you said a few minutes ago that verse 6 was a future reality. And now you're claiming verse 7 happened following the resurrection and ascension, which means there's 2,000 years that have gone by since this decree. Why hasn't Christ occupied his throne yet? If he is the rightful king, and verse 7 is speaking of his anointing, his consecration, his kingliness, why isn't he reigning? Why the delay? Well, first of all, I'd say this is the exact pattern that David followed. Uh, We don't have time to turn there, but if you remember in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is evaluating Jesse's sons, and he's parading the sons in front of him. Samuel's like, nope, nope, nope. David comes forward. Here's what Samuel says, 1 Samuel 16, 12. Or here's what happens. This is what Samuel said. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. David was God's anointed right there, dedicated to the Lord's kingly service at that time, consecrated, set apart. The Spirit came upon him, and yet he's a teenager. He didn't start ruling until he was age 30 in 2 Samuel 5, 4. Christ follows that same pattern. Christ was declared to be the Son of God at his resurrection, proving he's the one who's qualified to occupy the throne of David forever, but his reign doesn't happen immediately, his earthly reign. Look over at Psalm 110. A lot of parallel ideas in this psalm to Psalm 2. In fact, just like Psalm 2, David intentionally wrote here of the coming rule of the Messiah. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the throne of Yahweh in heaven, just as we saw in Psalm 2. Remember, he who sits in the heavens laughs on the throne. David's Lord here is being pictured as being at the right hand of Yahweh in heaven. Who is that? That's Christ. That's right now. He's been exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven. But according to Psalm 10, notice the Messiah's session at the right hand of God in heaven is temporary. It's only for a period of time. Until, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool. Until the time comes for me to make your enemies a footstool. How? What does that look like? Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. The location's the exact same. From Zion, in the midst of your enemies. Not in heaven, no, in the midst of them on earth. Just like we saw in Psalm 2, I have installed my king on my holy mountain. All right, so back back here in Psalm 2. Turn back now. Notice there's nothing in the language here that doesn't allow for an extended period of time, at least 2,000 years between verse 7 and verses 8 and 9. If you are familiar with the prophetic language of the Old Testament, you know that it can be common. 
for hundreds, thousands of years to be in the white space between one verse and another in prophecy. So verse 7's already happened. Verses 8 and 9 are still future as the son waits to occupy his earthly throne. But notice verse 8 as we continue to look at the triumphant reign established. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Ask of me, my son. The Messiah, the son, is granted universal supremacy, total dominion, not just localized, all nations to the very ends of the earth. For reference, you can jot down Zechariah 14.9. Here's what it says about this period. Zechariah 14.9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. The worship of Christ will be the predominant religion in the world, in the kingdom. He does away with all false religion on a massive scale and earth accepts and worships and submits to her rightful king. What about those who don't? What about those who resist? Because this isn't speaking of the eternal state. There's going to be unbelief. There's going to be sin in the kingdom. Well, initially, when the kingdom is installed, there's going to be a massive reckoning. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Notice the comparison there. He's taking something intrinsically strong and powerful, a rod of iron, and using it to shatter something that's vulnerable, fragile, weak, pottery. What's that language communicating? No contest. Defiant nations and rulers are going to be like fragile pottery against the blows of an iron rod, which means it'll be easy, it'll be swift. This king has no actual threats to his kingdom. The language of verse 9 is used several times in the New Testament. We, we only have time to look at one of them. Look at Revelation 19.15. <clears throat> Revelation 19.15. This is a scene referring to the second coming of Christ. And John doesn't explicitly quote Psalm 2, but he clearly picks up on the language to it, the language and he alludes to it here. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So he picks up the language of Psalm 2, and notice we get a little more detail about just how this judgment is going to take place. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He judges them with the very word they hate and despise. The very standard that they said, Let, let's tear this off and get it as far away as possible. The very word they raged against and suppressed now comes as the standard of their judgment. Back to Psalm 2, a, a triumphant reign is established. That brings us to a fourth scene depicting how God deals with human rebellion. A true repentance is exhorted. A true repentance is exhorted. Beginning in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. 
the kings and judges are addressed in this passage. And just like we saw in verse 1, because the, the nations go as their leaders go. Righteous leaders, righteous nation. Wicked leaders, wicked nation. So the exhortation here is to those in authority directly because of the influence they have and indirectly to everyone else. In verse 10, you see the exhortation, wise up. Think carefully about what you're doing. Think about what God has said. Take heed to the warning. Let yourselves be instructed, be teachable, accept reality. What does it look like to wise up and take heed to the warning? Verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Being wise means to become a worshiper of Yahweh. It means to cultivate a heart that fears him above all else, accept his rightful rule, submit to his ways, his wisdom. And notice this involves both a rejoicing and a trembling. Be joyful but not flippant. Rejoice but do so with reverence. How do you know if you're worshiping Yahweh? Well, the easiest way to know is what you're doing with his son. Yahweh and his anointed are a package. Reject one, reject the other. Accept one, accept the other. Verse 12, do homage to the son. Do homage to the son. Literally, kiss the son. Some of your versions might even have that language there. A little background for the ancient culture is helpful here so we don't import our modern understanding of kiss into this. When a king conquered his enemies, they were forced to come and kiss his feet as a sign of submission and to acknowledge, you are victorious, you've conquered us, you are our king, and we are your, we are your servants. You now have ruling rights over us. That's what's behind the imagery here of kiss the son. Confess him as king, submit to him as king. And a further motivation is given, that you not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Now, if you see this, if you read that, that statement and you're thinking, that's a little harsh. You know, I, I thought God was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, look at this. You catch him on a bad day and that's it. You're done. Well, if you read the psalm that way and you come, out, you come away thinking, wow, God's wrath is severe in this passage, you have a very high view of man and a low view of God because it is his very patience and compassion and mercy that's on display in this psalm. Creation has been put on notice and has been patiently given a chance to repent. What are the kings and rulers doing right now? Continuing what they've always been doing, living out their rebellion. They killed Christ. They've been persecuting the church, God's people, for thousands of years. And rather than wiping them out immediately, what do they receive? Warning, 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 long-suffering, patience from God. They're given an abundance of time to repent. The point of that phrase there is the patience of the offended king can end at any time. So don't presume upon his kindness. Don't presume upon his patience. When his moment comes for judgment, it is beyond appeasing, beyond postponing at that point. And so the only appropriate place to find ourselves would be the end of verse 11. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
the best position possible, the happiest position possible, take refuge in him. What's that word mean, refuge? Find your safety and security in the Son. The only refuge from the judge is in the judge. The God you hate must become the God you adore, the God you worship. The righteousness you suppress and despise must become the righteousness you acknowledge and delight in. All rebellion, all opposition to God's rule will come to an end and it will be effortless for Christ the King. So take refuge in, in the Son. Well, at this point, we're going to transition to our time around the Lord's table. I'll, I'll invite the men to come forward and be seated as we get prepared to distribute the elements. The Lord's Supper, as detailed in 1 Corinthians 11, is a memorial celebration of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have that very familiar language there, do this in remembrance of me. It's also a time of proclamation. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And it's a time for self-examination. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. Now, that is a burden placed on each individual. But here are some principles to guide you with that. The Lord's Supper is not for everyone. It, it is for believers. It is for those who have evidence of saving faith. And those who are old enough to have the ability to examine themselves and understand the implications of what they're doing. And furthermore, it's not for anyone who's unrepentant. Particularly anything in one's life that's threatening the purity and the unity of the church. That's the contextual idea there in 1 Corinthians 11. So we want to evaluate during this time bitterness in, in my heart, unforgiveness, anger, jealousy, hate. This is a time to, to acknowledge those things, confess those things in your heart to the Lord. And if you're trusting in the provision of forgiveness and righteousness in Christ Jesus, freely and joyfully partake.